Genesis is a book of origins, of the world, of sin, and of God's promise of redemption, and of the people of Israel. It traces God's pledge of a savior through Abraham's line down to his great-grandson Judah. It serves as a foundation for the New Testament and its teaching that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to save humankind from sin and death. In this Tyndale commentary, Andrew Steinman offers a thorough exegetical commentary on Genesis, including a reconstructed timeline of events from Abraham's life through to the death of Joseph. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Biblical Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Andrew Steinman about his new Genesis commentary in the Tyndale Old Testament Commentary series. Andrew Steinman is Distinguished Professor of Theology and Hebrew at Concordia University in Chicago. He is the author of numerous books, including From Abraham to Paul, and commentaries on First and Second Samuel, Ezra and Nehemiah, Proverbs, and Daniel. Dr. Steinman, welcome to the show. Good to be with you, Jonathan. Thanks. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us just a bit about yourself and how you became interested in biblical studies. Oh, okay. Well, um... I'm, um, I guess you might say, a senior scholar at, at Concordia University. I've been here 20 years now. I started in biblical studies um, when I was a parish pastor. Uh, I got interested in, in biblical studies, obviously, in my seminary studies. Um, and I was a parish pastor in the Detroit area, and I started looking around at ways that I could um, get more education and ended up in the PhD program at the University of Michigan in Near Eastern Studies, uh, which was, you know, partly biblical studies and partly um, ancient uh, studies of the Near East, which was actually a very good education and a very broadening education beyond uh, very narrow biblical studies. Uh, And uh, at the time, uh, I was teaching at Concordia College in Ann Arbor, um, and then later on, about 20 years ago, I uh, took this position at Concordia University, Chicago, uh, and I've kind of been here ever since. And, and mainly I teach Old Testament um, and Hebrew and Aramaic. Uh, so that's that's kind of all I do now, which is uh, great because that's what I love doing. Uh, and I don't have to kind of go out of outside of my field because I've always kept busy uh, doing things within biblical studies. I guess what attracted me to biblical studies, and I've, I've been a Christian all my life, um, was a chance to um, delve deeper into God's word uh, and enrich my life and hopefully, by what I've learned, enrich the lives uh, of my students and hopefully my readers uh, of my books. And also, um, I'm just a little nerdy about that. I like delving into things in the scriptures that are perhaps technical um, or perhaps a little obscure that most people wouldn't necessarily delve into. Um, But I can spend endless hours just going uh, on what many people would think would be uh, minor points in the Bible. But generally, I find that uh, there are never minor points, that they always have something to say uh, to the Christian faith if you uh, delve far enough and do enough uh, reading and research and thinking and praying. So um, that's that's kind of my life as a, a biblical scholar. Wow. Yeah. And and so 
that journey has has led to you know authoring quite a few books, and now with Genesis, um, this is an amazing commentary. And I wonder, just to, you know, to overview your work, I've been preparing some questions about texts and topics of interest that you treated in this commentary. But before we begin, how, how did you come to write this work? Like, what inspired doing this commentary? Yeah, well, I never thought I would write a commentary on Genesis. I had. Over the years, and especially in the past decade or so, had, had written a number of journal articles on passages in Genesis, um, problem passages that scholars have looked at, and it was especially interested in uh, tracing the messianic promise in Genesis. And um, I guess it came to the attention of David Firth in, in England, who is the uh, editor of this Old Testament series for the Tyndale Old Testament commentary. And I, out one day out of the blue, I got an email from him asking me if I would write this commentary. Now, I never expected anybody from Tyndale to uh, contact me and ask me to write for this series. Uh, and the first thing I thought of is, did he send the email to the wrong person? Um, but um, Eventually, you know, I realized that, no, he probably had read a, a number of things that I had published uh, and uh, was impressed enough with them, I guess, to ask me to write this commentary. So um, I took it on as, as a project, well, not quite knowing where I was going because I hadn't done a kind of a thorough study of Genesis from chapter one all the way through chapter 50. Um, but um, I was able to spend about a year and a half, two years, just uh, looking at Genesis, reading through it again in Hebrew, uh, looking at various things that others had published on it. And it kind of piqued my interest even more in uh, writing a complete commentary on the book of Genesis. So this was, from my viewpoint, almost an accident because I never really envisioned myself writing on Genesis when most of my writings have been on uh, later books in the scriptures, not, not you know, the, the first book in the scripture. But certainly I enjoyed it, and it was a, a, a very enlightening journey for me, too, as I discovered uh, more things in Genesis that um, I had never even looked at until I was forced to, to write this commentary. Mm. Yeah. So when you sat down to approach writing this commentary, what, what methodologies kind of sets this commentary apart from other commentaries on Genesis? Uh, well, I think uh, it, you know, you're, you're always in conversation with other commentaries. When you write a commentary, I've written all seven commentaries by now. Uh, and you're kind of always in, in conversation with what people have written before you going all the way back, uh, you know, to the early church and going forward. But if I would say one thing that sets this apart, um, is my method of always asking the question as a Christian, how does this point to Jesus? What does this tell me about Christ? Um, and if there's one kind of overarching method I have is to always ask myself that question as I'm, you know, exploring issues that seem sometimes like, you know, 
side issues or, you know, kind of rabbit trails that take you away uh, from the main message of the book. And, and my method is to kind of always pull myself back, not only to the, the book of Genesis itself or whatever book I'm writing on, but also to pull myself back to the entire scriptural canon by asking that question, how does this point to Jesus? How does this uh, help us understand better what God has done for us in sending his son? Right. And so in speaking of overarching questions, um, as you've you know looked over this book again and again and, and read it and just thought a lot about it, what do you kind of come away with thinking that the main message of Genesis is? I, I think the main message is from the very beginning that God has a uh, overarching design and plan for the world that he created. Uh, and that, you know, even with all the things that go on in Genesis, nothing is going to allow that plan to be derailed. And, and getting back to my overarching question about Christ, I believe the book of Genesis is the book that sets the tone for the, the messianic promises that we read elsewhere in the entire Old Testament. So I think the main theme is God, uh, who created the world, loves the world. Uh, he doesn't abandon his world just because of the problems that we read about in the book of Genesis, but is ever committed uh, through his promises to bring the world back to him, even though it is strayed, and bring humanity back to him. And I think the overarching message then is just God's love for humanity and how that is going to be fulfilled through his promises to um, the patriarchs and uh, the, the people of God that we meet in the narrative of Genesis. Right. And so then, you know, it, it has such a, a, a huge role to play within the biblical canon um, in this work, you call Genesis the foundational book of the Old Testament. Can you explain why you hold that view? Well, because it introduces and defines for us a number of very important um, topics that come up over and over again in the rest of scriptures. Uh, obviously, the idea that the earth is God's creation. It, it doesn't come about from a random act of you know, nature or something like that, but that the earth is a creation of God designed by God uh, for his purposes. And those purposes uh, are fleshed out th through the rest of the scriptures. Uh, secondly, the origin of sin uh, in Genesis chapter three and, and going on and what sin is and, and its implications for humankind is laid out first of all, in the pages of Genesis. And so in some ways, it defines this topic throughout the rest of the scriptures. Um, as I've mentioned before, the Messianic promise, which I believe also comes for the first time in chapter three of Genesis, and the trajectory towards Christ, who is the, the capstone of the scriptures and the goal of the Old Testament. This is laid out in Genesis repeatedly uh, from uh, God's words to Eve all the way to his final promises uh, given to Judah in chapter 49. 
So that's another thing that becomes foundational, I think, for a correct understanding of the entire Old Testament. Um, and then it gives us the lives of people um, that are just critical for understanding uh, the identity of Israel and then the identity of God's people in general, especially Abraham, but also Isaac and Jacob. Uh, and those Three men are mentioned over and over again uh, in the Old Testament as a trio. Uh, Abraham, of course, uh, very important in the New Testament when uh, Jesus talks about being Abraham's children. So Genesis is just so foundational for the Old Testament and even uh, casts its shadow, I think, quite large into the New Testament. So it's because Genesis introduces readers to these topics, and I, I believe was written to be the foundational book of the Old Testament, uh, and to um, set forth the trajectory of all these topics uh, for the rest of the prophets to write about. Right, exactly. And let's uh, let's change gears just a little bit. Um, obviously, any, any reader of scholarship on Genesis knows that it is slightly controversial, um, and I would love to hear your take of what you think is important to establish about Genesis's authorship, its composition, and, and its date. Yeah, I, I think this is uh, very important because since the Enlightenment, there have been a lot of challenges to the traditional view that this is one of the five books that should be attributed to Moses. Um, and I spend a good amount of time in the introduction talking about um, other views, uh, and especially the standard higher critical view uh, that believes there are four major sources behind the Pentateuch, um, with three of them appearing in the book of Genesis, and why uh, I believe that that is not uh, a proper um, view of where Genesis came from. It's not the Genesis of Genesis, if we might say that. Instead, I believe that the traditional view is in the main correct. I do discuss uh, in the introduction that there are some passages in the Pentateuch and, and Genesis in particular, we can look at certain passages that seem to have been added to Genesis uh, beyond Moses' lifetime. Uh, they, they have clear indications that th these things could not have been written by Moses, but I don't believe that the, the critical view that the book has really nothing to do with Moses, that he's uh, um, legendarily attached to the book of Genesis and not really the author. Uh, I, I just find that quite wanting. Uh, I also find it to be a child of um, philosophical of the 19th century, uh, and that if it weren't for those philosophical currents, we probably wouldn't have the documentary hypothesis with its four sources um, floating around. Uh, and even some of its assumptions, I find, uh, to be lacking and um, tied to uh, things that would make sense in the 19th century, but because we know more, don't make sense uh, in the 21st century. So it was possible in the 19th century, for instance, to say we have different names for God in Genesis, and therefore these must indicate in some way 
uh, different documents from different authors that were combined uh, to give us the genesis we know today. The reason I find that lacking is we now know from archaeology of the ancient Near East that in many documents, uh, one god will be referred to uh, by several names. So the uh, one of the major criteria that kicked off this idea of uh, several documents lying behind Genesis um, is is invalid, and we now know that it was invalid. Um, and it, it still surprises me that yet there are many many scholars today who want to say no Genesis comes from these sources, um, and I'm sure anybody who's read anything on Genesis or the Pentateuch as a whole has read about these supposed sources. And it just seems to me that that's just a captive of 19th century philosophy. And ever since then, scholars have been trying to adapt an outmoded philosophy uh, to later times. And so, although I don't make this argument directly in my commentary, um, that is going to be quite controversial, that, that I still hold to the bulk of Genesis coming uh, from Moses uh, with a few additions that seem to have been added uh, by other people uh, later than Moses. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a good amount of this discussion at the beginning of the commentary in the introduction, and I try to help readers um, see through that and at the same time try to present a persuasive argument that um, the modern theories that deny uh, Moses as the author uh, simply are inadequate to account for what we read in the book of Genesis. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I think that was a very helpful section and one that will definitely benefit readers. So also you've touched on this a little bit before, um, but in the introduction, you write that, uh, quote, themes found first in Genesis grow throughout the rest of the Old Testament until they bud and flower in the New Testament in the person of Jesus, the Christ. And I wonder if maybe you could spend just a little more time developing those themes that you identify that will be continued through the Bible story from Genesis. Yeah, I think there are, are several some of them that um, readers will think are more important for the entire Bible and some that are less important. One that's very important that I mentioned a little bit earlier was uh, sin and its attachment to human nature. Um, and we see the effects of sin throughout the book of Genesis. We see God um, observing that sin is firmly attached uh, to the human heart uh, he makes these statements there, and then we see this developing throughout the rest of Scripture. So we see Israel in, in Exodus rebelling against God. We, we see uh, when we get to the book of Joshua, um, sins like the sin of Achan uh, beginning to derail Israel's entry into the land. And of course, something has to be done about that. We see this uh, again in the book of Judges, where we have a cycle of Israel abandoning God and, and in their sin turning to uh, the gods of Canaan. Uh, and so the, this develops and we get more and more insight into exactly what it means that human beings are 
sinful and sinful from their youth until we get to the New Testament, where, for instance, in the letters of Paul, we get a, a, a kind of a systematic treatment of this. I'm thinking of the beginning of the book of Romans, where we get a very systematic treatment of this. We don't get a treatment like that in the Old Testament, but it finally flowers. And then it flowers because Paul wants to explain why Jesus had to come to, uh, to overcome this sinful nature that is attached to human beings ever since the fall. So that has its connection to Christ. On a more minor level, at least many readers will think it's a more minor level, although I think it's a very important one and perhaps a very contemporary one, is God's design for the human race in marriage. Uh, We find this already in the first and second chapters of Genesis. God creates uh, human beings, male and female, already mentioned in Genesis 1. Uh, He talks about the institution of marriage in Genesis 2. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And, of course, we see lots of discussion about marriage, about uh, uh, husbands and wives throughout the rest of uh, the Old Testament. And then, of course, when we get to the New Testament, we have the Pharisees challenging Jesus on divorce. And can you divorce your wife for just any old reason? Well, what did Moses teach you? Jesus asks. And they say, well, he said, write, write her a bill of divorce, right? So they go to later in the Pentateuch. And then Jesus says, no, 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 go back. What does it say in the beginning? Of course, the opening phrase of Genesis. And then he quotes Genesis chapter two and says, therefore, what God has joined together, man shouldn't separate. So uh, that's another theme that that comes to a head in Jesus, where he endorses a biblical view of marriage. And of course, um, Considering alternate views of sexuality in our world today, Genesis has a particular view of sexuality as designed by God for humans, for their good, for the good of the planet that he's placed us on. And um, that theme comes um, in, in the very beginning of Genesis, keeps on growing throughout the Old Testament And then flowers in the New Testament with Jesus teaching on marriage. And then, of course, later on, Jesus' apostles, I'm thinking particularly of Paul, who has several passages again in the New Testament, where he talks about husbands and wives and their relationship to one another. So that's a a second topic. And and like I said, many readers will think it's a more minor topic. But I think given the world we live in and the changing views of human sexuality, I think it's an important topic for Christians to think about as they read uh, the scriptures and see its roots going all the way back to God's creative activity. Uh, I think God's uh, concern for the human race and his steadfast commitment to humans who, who, despite the fact that they have often turned their backs on him, yet he has this steadfast love for them. That's something that that you meet first in Genesis, and you meet it over and over again. You see Abraham not always trusting God, um, you know, and God God gives Abraham this promise, I will bless those who bless you, and those who disrespect you I will curse, and yet he goes down to Egypt and doesn't seem to trust that promise, and he says to Sarah, say you're my sister, right? He doesn't trust that if somebody tries to take 
his wife that God would keep his promise and curse them. Uh, and so he, he in, a, in effect, turns his back on God's promise, yet God does not turn his back on Abraham. And we see the same type of thing with Isaac, and we see the same type of things with um, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons in Genesis. And then, of course, then we see more and more examples of this throughout the rest of the Old Testament. We see the prophets talking about God's steadfast love for his people. I'm thinking especially of great passages in prophets like Isaiah uh, and even Jeremiah. And of course, then that again comes to flower in Jesus, where God's ultimate sign of love is that he sends his son into the world to suffer and die for these human beings that have constantly disappointed him. And yet he doesn't give up on them. And so that's a, another theme and maybe the most important theme, I think, um, that come out of Genesis and flower in the person of Jesus Christ. Great. Yeah, those are very helpful um, themes that you highlight. Um, so speaking of Genesis 1 and 2, could you summarize how you approach those chapters and then how you read the Genesis, the, the creation account? Well, I read the cre creation account as giving us a, a week, uh, six days plus the seventh day for God's rest that are actual solar days, um, akin to what we would think of as a 24-hour day. And I, and I have argued this, well, before I wrote this commentary, I argued this in papers that this is exactly what Genesis 1 is indicating. Um, and so I read this as God's creative activity over a short period of time, and that it demonstrates the almighty power of God that through his word, through just speaking, he can bring these things about. Uh, I do not, you know, try to come into some type of theory that uh, says that the days are ages or that the days are something else. And Interestingly enough, I would have a lot of scholars on the other end of the spectrum. If, if you put me on the conservative Christian side of the spectrum, we'd have scholars on the complete opposite side of the spectrum that would agree with me that that's what Genesis is saying. They may not agree that that's actually what happened, but they would agree that that's what Genesis is saying. And it's, it's people that are trying to have Genesis both ways that want to do something like well, the days aren't literal days, that they want to say God literally created the heavens and the earth. Um, and I want to be, a, you know, a Christian committed to the scriptures, but they want to somehow read those days some other ways. Um, and I note in the commentary, and I also uh, footnote my articles on this, some indications in the text of Genesis 1 itself that says these are regular days. Uh, some of these are well known. For instance, it defines a day as an evening and a morning uh, repeatedly throughout the first chapter. But also some things that are obscured sometimes from English readers because of uh, English translations. For instance, the first day is not called the first day, even though that says that in many English translations. It literally says one day. It says there was an evening and a morning, one day, which I believe defines. Uh, exactly what the author means to say by that, that Moses is saying this is one regular day. And then the other days um, do not 
have the definite article on them. It does not say the second day, the third day, the fourth day in the Hebrew text. It says a second day, a third day, a fourth day. Finally, you get to the sixth day, and the grammar there is even a little strange because it doesn't say the sixth day. It says a day, the sixth one. So I, I believe that actually this is obscured in uh, most English translations, but when you read it in Hebrew and you read carefully without with putting out of your mind what the English translations say, you realize what you're seeing on the page is every day that Moses is relating, he is saying this is a regular solar day, beginning with evening, going to morning, next day starts with a new evening. And of course, that's how the ancient Israelites counted their days. The day began in evening with sundown. Um, the Sabbath begins at sundown. And then later on, the um, later books of Moses in Exodus, for instance, uh, you will work six days and rest seven days because this is what the Lord your God did when he created the heavens and the earth. It seems to me to be the interpretation that the Bible itself puts on these first two chapters. Many people will say I'm an old traditionalist uh, because I take this view. Well, if that's the label they want to put on me, I guess that's fine. But I would argue what I am doing is just paying close attention to the um, grammar that Moses uses, to the expressions he uses, and the way he presents uh, this first creative week, and that he is presenting it as a literal week made up of six days plus a day of rest. A lot of people uh, will probably raise their eyebrows at that, but I believe that's the correct way to understand the text, the way the scripture understands the text elsewhere, and the way the text itself is begging readers to read it. Gotcha. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. So with Genesis 1 through 11, kind of summarizing the world's beginnings at a, on a cosmic scale, how, how do you think Genesis 1 through 11 then relates to 12 through 50 as more the story of Abraham and how God starts his work? Yeah, that's a very good question, because, of course, when you read the first 11 chapters, um, once you get out of, you know, the first two chapters, which which take place in a week, then the narrative pace picks up really quickly. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 11, you've covered a lot of chronology, a lot of, you know, time has passed. So the narrative pace, for the most part, of those early chapters of Genesis is very quick. And then you hit Abraham, and it slows down drastically. You're going to follow this guy, Abraham, once you get to chapter 12, throughout the the final years of his life. I mean, you're, you, meet, you meet him, he's already an old man, uh, but you're going to follow him throughout his old age as he seeks to have a, a, a child that God promised him and, and so forth. So what's the connection? Well, I believe the main connection is to trace the promise uh, first given to uh, Eve that someone would come and crush the serpent's head, the serpent who had deceived her and caused her to bring herself and her husband uh, into rebellion against God. But yet God promises he's going to send 
a seed, and I read that as a single seed, not as a collective. Um, and I try to explain that in the commentary, but that he's going to send a seed to crush the serpent's head, to undo the work of the serpent. And then you have to ask, well, which seed is this? Well, is it Cain? Well, we find out pretty quickly in chapter four, it's not our firstborn son, Cain, and it's certainly not Abel because uh, he dies apparently without children. But then we quickly begin to trace um, Adam's line from his other son, Seth, all the way down to Noah. Um, And then uh, after uh, Noah, we get some other um, stories, but mainly by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, we get another trace, 10-step genealogy that takes us down to Abraham where things slow down. And I believe those 20 people that are traced from Abraham, uh, from Adam all, all the way up to Abraham, is a tracing of where God is taking this promise. Where is this seed going to come from? And then we find out God chooses Abraham, and Abraham becomes the most important person in the book of Genesis other than God himself. And there's more material on Abraham than any other person. And God ends up giving Abraham promises. In fact, if you kind of chart them out, there's really seven promises. And seven, of course, is an important number throughout the book of Genesis. And although I don't mention this in the commentary, I kind of feel that there's a reason for seven promises because Abraham is going to be the source of the new creation that comes when God's promise is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so like the seven days of creation, we have the seven promises to Abraham. Uh, And these include things like, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. And I will give this land to your descendants and I will be your shield and your great reward. Uh, He gives seven basic promises to this patriarch and we follow him down. And so the first 11 chapters take us on a very quick trip so that we're ready for Abraham and this question of, well, where is that promise given to Eve going? And when the narrative drastically slows down in Abraham, we realize we need to pay attention to Abraham and what comes out of him and his line, because one of the messages of the book is that's where God has chosen the promise to reside in the line going from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob and then to the people of Israel. Exactly. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I, I appreciate the way that you connected those two. Well, Dr. Steinman, we so appreciate you taking the time to do this interview with us. Before we uh, conclude this interview, would you mind sharing with our listeners what you're working on next? Yes. Well, I'm uh, in the the ending stages of writing a commentary on Esther um, for uh, Lifeway in Nashville. Uh, they've they've got a preliminary draft of the manuscript, and I'm sure I'm going to be writing back and forth and making you know changes, uh, additions, and subtractions until it comes out in print. So um, that uh, project is nearing the end. Um, I'm currently um, beginning another project um, that kind of flows out of my Genesis commentary. I want to look at the uh, Septuagint version of Genesis, the ancient Greek version of Genesis, 
uh, and begin to look at ways in which it looks like um, the Septuagint translators or perhaps the ones, the persons who are responsible for the Hebrew text behind the Septuagint um, made additions or subtractions to the text of Genesis and exactly why they did that. Because it appears to me from my study of Genesis that there are a number of purposeful changes that were introduced uh, in the Septuagint um, as compared to the traditional Hebrew text. And I want to do a a kind of a scholarly study of what those changes were, what prompted them, and therefore also answer the question of how are these ancient Israelites reading, understanding, and trying to explain the book of Genesis by making these sometimes subtle changes in the text as they produce this ancient Greek translation of the book. Wow, that sounds fascinating. Well, that will be incredible when that that gets released. Um, so for our listeners, this work on Genesis is a great addition to, to scholarship on the book of Genesis and for those interested in Christian academics and in, in ministry. And for our listeners, I'd heartily recommend adding this commentary to your collection. And thanks for listening to this episode of New Books and Biblical Studies. As always, I'm Jonathan Wright, your host. And until next time, Take up and read.